Um, if you could uh, open your Bibles, if you have them, up to Ecclesiastes. We've been looking through the book of Ecclesiastes. If uh, you need a Bible, uh, you can just raise your hand. There's different people walking around, different guys. And if you need one, just uh, say, hey, I, I need one. If, if you don't have a Bible, uh, keep the Bible. It's a, it's a gift from us to you. Um, we're passionate about Scripture here. And so if you don't have one, we would uh, love to, to give you a Bible. But here's what we've been doing as you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been working through it, and, and the guy that wrote it, Solomon, who, uh, who we find out from Scripture was the wisest man to ever live outside of Jesus Christ, he's just walking through and he's asking these questions about life under the sun. He's just talking about life. He's asked all kinds of questions. If you remember right, we talked through everything from money to marriage to, to, to resources to just everything, even asking difficult questions about oppression and, and and even just the heartache of, of watching people that are oppressed. And it was interesting when I looked at my time speaking on Ecclesiastes. One was oppression. One was, I think, uh, difficulty. And now today I'm going to speak about the fear of God. So I think every time now you see me come up here, it's like, oh no. Here comes Todd. What are we going to do? But he just speaks to every aspect of life. Now, it bookends in the book of Ecclesiastes, starting in chapter 1, verse 2, and maybe just keep your finger in 12 and turn back to chapter 1, verse 2, and we start to see what he's going to be talking about because he says in there, verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, now that you've gotten there, turn back to chapter 12, look at verse 8. On the second bookend, to kind of give us an idea of what he's talking about, he just says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And what we've been talking about is that life is incomprehensible. It doesn't make sense. It is purposeless. It, it, it has no bearing whatsoever apart from God. The only thing that makes life able to look at it with purpose and meaning and direction is the reality of God in the midst of it. We've been going all the time, moving toward chapter 12, and we've kept saying we're going to get to 12, 13 through 14, and 12, 13 through 14, where we understand this idea of the fear of God, and we, and we not only understand the fear of God, but we also begin to understand this idea of what it means to keep His commandments. But Solomon wants us to get that it is chabel, it is meaningless, it's here today, gone tomorrow, it's a vapor, apart from God being at the center of it. And that's the drum we've tried to beat all throughout. So in a nutshell, and as you've got your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 12, or 1 Corinthians, gosh, I automatically go there. Anybody that knows me knows that I think, I think that's the only divine book in the Bible. But look at verse 13. He just says this, When everything is said and done, the end of the matter, all has been heard, this is the point. Fear God and keep His commandments, this is the whole duty of man. He says, after writing through all of it, this is what I want you to get in a nutshell. But I don't think it's just this like statement that we're supposed to ponder. I don't think life under the sun is some grim exercise. Some people view the book of Ecclesiastes as just somehow we just kind of exist here and we're waiting for Jesus to return. I think what he's talking about is this reality of fearing God and obeying his commandments. I think it carries with it this idea that suddenly everything in life begins to have perspective. It starts to have meaning. It starts to have purpose. So in other words, and the thing we've talked about is that when I eat and drink suddenly, I can eat and drink to the glory of God. When I, when I, when I eat that steak, I can eat that steak to the glory of God. I was talking with my son the other day. We went out to eat together, and I've been trying to work through this stuff with my kids, and I go... 
Josiah, see this hamburger? I said, we're going to eat this to the glory of God. And we start eating it. And he looks over at me and goes, this whole eating to the glory of God thing is great, Dad. <laughs> we're married to the glory of God. We go through everything, including cancer, to the glory of God. Every last aspect, if it comes back, like gravity pulls us back, that when all of a sudden God is in the midst of it, we find new joy, new satisfaction, new contentment. Everything begins to point in this direction to what we were designed for, which is to know God, love God, and follow God. And Solomon says when that gets added into it, life has meaning. Apart from him, it is chabel, it is incomprehensible. Now, before he gets there, though, one of the things that he's going to do before we get to this idea kind of of his main point is he's going to talk through, first of all, this idea. He wants to give weight to what he's saying. See, sometimes you have to kind of help people understand this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Or maybe even in this case, people were asking Solomon, what gives you the right to speak into my life? Who are you? How in the world did you arrive at this stuff? And what he's going to be doing in 9 through 12 is he's going to land for us this idea of what gives credence to what he's saying. Look at verse 9 when he says this. This is one of the first things he says. One of the reasons you can trust what I'm saying, he says, is besides being wise, I've also taught a lot of people knowledge. Now, to bolster this idea of what gives this credit, in other words, you aren't the first group of people that I've taught this to. The reason you can trust what I'm saying is, is I have gone through the process of teaching this information over and over. I've gone through the scrutiny. I've had my message vetted. And at the end of it, you can trust it because even others have looked upon it and affirmed it to be true. That might be the first thing. Second thing he brings up is he says, not only did I do it in front of them, but look at the other one. He says he was weighing and studying these Proverbs. The idea of weighing means to listen to something and to take it in and then to study it means to just chew on it and ponder. At this particular time, probably what he's referencing is, is I sat and I listened to many Proverbs, just these short kind of statements that help us understand life. And as I took them in, I thought through them. And after thinking through them and pondering them, you need to understand the reason you can trust this is because as the wisest man ever outside of Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, you can trust these statements. He doesn't stop there. Along with weighing and studying it, he also began to, to, to move it into to, to weighing it out. The idea that he uses is carefully evaluated. He, he arranged it then and he put them all together. In other words, I, I not only weighed it and thought through it and pondered it, but then I put these things together. I arranged them. The idea is to put into the correct order. And he's saying you can match your life to this because you can arrange your life in this good arrangement. You can follow what I'm doing. You can do this. And not only that, he says, look at verse 10. He said, I sought to find words of delight. I even put it together so that it would land inside of you. I love this so much. We live at a time when I hear everybody saying, I just like straight talkers. I like straight talkers. You know what? I like people that think and ponder and wrestle before they speak. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. He says, before anything came out of my mouth, I wanted you to understand it. I've arranged these in such a way that it wasn't just me trying to speak truth at you, but I wanted to penetrate. And his point is, is that over time it has. And not only that, but he says in the next part of it, he says, I uprightly wrote words of truth. 
The word upright, literally what it means is to be sincere. In other words, all this stuff that I've taught to people, I've actually lived. I've actually, everything from the beginning of Ecclesiastes to the end of it, what you've heard, I've lived this, it's been in my life. What I'm saying to you is real because I've seen it in my own life. You can trust it. Not only that, he says, but look at verse 11. As I've taught people, and I love this word, he said these words have become like goads. What in the world's a goad? A goad is this long stick, and they would put spikes on the end of it, nails that would stick out, and the shepherd would use it for two purposes. One was to keep sheep on the straight and narrow. So in other words, if a sheep started to go off, they would take the little goad and they would just hit him in the rear end to kind of pull him back in, or they would hit him on this end. Sometimes sheep became stubborn, and literally what they would do is they would take that goad and poke him in the rear end to get him moving. What's he saying? My words have poked many a people in the rear end to keep them on the straight path and move them where God wants them to go. I've seen it happen. He said, not only that, but it's become like a nail fixed. He said, it's this thing that I've watched that as I've taught these words, it's like an anchor that they can hold to in the midst of difficulty. I've taught these words and people have held on to them. So I think what he's saying is, is my words afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. I've watched it. But the supreme reason, he says, you can trust it when you look down at the very end of it is he says, here's where these words came from. They were given by one shepherd. I think in a cool way, he's showing us how God put together Scripture. He says, the reason you can trust it is I get, and especially in verse 12, is there's all these different books out there. There's all kinds of information. There's, there's no end to books. But what sets apart his letter, and I would say this, every other letter, is this particular book that was formulated, was formulated by one shepherd. You can trust every last aspect of it. It will always guide you in the correct way. It'll spur you on when you need it. When you hit the lowest moment of your life, it will give sustenance to your soul to carry you through it. And let me tell you something. For over 4,000 years, that's what God has done. It has stood the test of time. And Solomon says, you can trust it. You can trust my words. And after verifying the fact that you can trust my words, he then starts off to begin to explain now how are we going to encapsulate it. And that's why he says now, when we get to verse 12, when the end of all matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. I boiled it down. Now the question we have to ask ourselves though is what in the world does it mean to fear God? It's not something we talk about, is it? Most churches, when we talk, we come in here and we talk a lot about grace, which, by the way, I'm so glad we talk about grace. We talk about love. We talk about hope. We talk about faith. But did you realize in the Bible that actually the fear of the Lord, our fear towards the Lord, is the most often talked about topic inside of the Bible? Inside of the Bible, the word love, and I just wrote these down. Here's just some things to chew on. Love to God, His name, His law, His word is used 88 times, 45 times in the Old Testament, 43 times in the New Testament. So 88 times our love towards God, His name, His law, His word. When you get now to this word of trusting God, His name, His word, it's used 91 times, 82 times in the Old Testament, 9 in the, in the New. 90, so in other words, 91 times. Now listen to this. When we come to the subject of the fear of God, our fear towards his word, towards his law, towards his name, it is used 278 times. 
Now, anytime you read something and it gets used 278 times, you should probably go, hmm, I should probably pay attention to this. In other words, I think what we're talking about here is that we need to understand it. Now, typically when we talk about fear, and I've heard this one all the time, the term that we use for trying to explain it is, is that it's reverential awe. And I've always thought, I don't even know what reverential is, but I do understand what awe is. I understand that one. When we speak about it, though, oftentimes you'll, you'll think about this, the, of reverential awe for something. So in other words, if you've ever stood before the Grand Canyon, you've realized reverence and awe as you stood on the end and realized that if you were to fall off, you would die. I've stood before the Tetons, I've climbed the Tetons, and let me tell you something, whether you're far back or on the Tetons, you experience reverence and awe. I think that's why all throughout the scriptures, God uses nature as this mean to build reverence and awe inside of us. We're supposed to be awestruck. But I think in some ways that isn't sufficient to help us understand what the fear of God is. I mean, if you could just imagine for a second right now, if all of a sudden God in all of his glory landed into this room, do you honestly think we'd go, oh, reverence and awe? I think all of us in this room would fall on our faces trembling in who he is. Now, if you don't believe me, we can go to the Bible, Isaiah 6. Here's Isaiah. He gets ushered off into the throne room of God. It says the, the whole temple was filled with his glory and he's looking at it. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is he goes, reverential awe. He says this statement, woe is me. That doesn't sound like reverential awe alone. Now some people go, well, that was Old Testament. God in the Old Testament was God of fear. God in the New Testament's God of love. As if God in the Old Testament, he didn't love, nor in the New Testament we're supposed to fear. We think, no, because Todd, like you think about it, like in 1 John, when, when, when John is talking, he says, perfect love casts out fear. True statement, absolutely true statement. But the same John who wrote 1 John wrote Revelation. In Revelation 1 it says, when he stood before the risen Christ, it says he fell on his face in front of the feet of Jesus at just absolutely trembling at who he was. Now, did Jesus look at him and say, fear not and lift him up? Exactly. But I think it's just as true in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. We are to have something so much deeper than just a reverential awe towards God. Even Paul says this in Philippians 2.12. He says, work out your salvation with fear and reverential awe. No, he says, fear and trembling. In other words, I think we need to redefine our understanding of what it means to fear God. That maybe some of the problems we're having in our life might be because we don't understand what it means to fear God. Maybe we need to re-understand this idea of who God is as a consuming fire who's able to destroy both the body and soul and, and hell. This one to whom Chris spoke about that we are going to answer to one day and give an account for our lives. In other words, we need to re-grasp at this idea of what is the fear of God. And what I'd like to do is we're going to have to exit the book of Ecclesiastes and go with me to Exodus 19. And I want to kind of build this case on what do I see out of scriptures as, as the fear of God using the life of Moses and the, and the people of God to try to understand this. Because I think this is the lesson that God's trying to drive home for the people of Israel. So go with me to first, Exodus 19 and, and, and go to verse 16 and watch this. 
On the morning of the third day, it says there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp had awe and reverence. They trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. It says in there that this smoke, not only was it on top of it, but that Moses is that he went up and the Lord said to Moses, verse 21, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. In other words, I think the only thing you could say is, is that they were terrified. The people were commanded not to get too close and I'm thinking to myself, can you imagine God says don't get too close? I'd be like, totally cool, big time, I'm out of here. I think in their heads they were thinking it's better to run away than to move too close. We know that with their minds they weren't sure what to do because by the time we get to Exodus 20, look at verse 18, we start to get an idea of what's going on inside of their head. In Exodus 20, verse 18, maybe just a page or so over, it says, When all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoke, uh, smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They were terrified. They didn't even want to go near it. They said, Moses, let you speak to us. Don't let God do it because we'll die. They feared for their lives and the presence of God. And everything in them was thinking, just get away. And I love what Moses says in here because now we're going to start to see the purpose of fear. Moses, in verse 20, he's going to explain now something for us. He says this statement, do not fear. I love that. Do you know all throughout the Bible, you, I don't care where you are, you'll always hear these statements like with Jesus, the guys are with him and they're terrified and Jesus shows up and they're freaking out and he says this common statement, do not fear. It's the anthem of God in regards to fear. Do not fear. Well, why, Moses? He's going to explain. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to thick darkness where God was. Now think about how contradictory this was. Look back down in there. Do not fear because God is doing this so that you will fear him. Have you ever thought how weird that is? I mean, they must have been sitting there going, so which is it? I think what he was demonstrating is something that's very, very important. It's something that's so counterintuitive to what we do. True fear does not lead us to run away from God. True fear compels us to run to God. In other words, he's saying, don't fear all these other things. Just fear him. That's the only one that you need to fear. Nothing else around you need, need, to, do, you need to worry about. And then I love in the statement, it says that Moses drew near. And as he drew near, you know the people were looking going, is he crazy going up to talk to God? Why would you do that? There's a guy that uh, I know of that uh, he, had a, he had a daughter and they were going out to a a farm and a ranch in Wyoming, and they got out there, and it was, it was a sheep farm. And this guy had these huge, not little sheep dogs, but, but big sheep dogs on his, on his particular ranch. And we were, or the guy was sitting there talking, and, 
And all of a sudden, the little girl darted across the lawn, and the sheepdog that was sitting right there, she was going towards the fence. The sheepdog just goes, that little girl stopped in her tracks. The rancher softly says to this little girl, I need you to walk back to the dog. She's three. You know she's sitting there going, are you nuts? The guy, as he's talking, he's talking about the fact that I'm like, I don't want her to go back to this particular dog. And the farmer or the rancher looks at her and just goes, just walk back to the dog. It was counterintuitive. As she began to walk back to the dog, I don't know if you've ever seen the demeanor of a dog moving from angry to happy, but all of a sudden the tail started to move, he started to hunch, and the guy looked at this little girl and said, now put your arm around me. <laughs> the little girl didn't even know what counterintuitive means, but she was like, this is counterintuitive. <laughs> she put her arm around the dog, and the dog licked. The fear of God is counterintuitive. See, the reality of everything in us is think I want to run away from God. But as I begin to run away from God, we hear God go, Not only that, but the guy asked the rancher, he goes, what happens if if my little girl would have kept going? He said, that dog would have gone so fast and nipped her at the heels until she understood she needed to come back. And let me tell you something, according to Hebrews 12, God disciplines those he loves. Not only will he growl, but he'll nip. Why? Because we're going to learn something so valuable in this text. Our powerful, awesome, absolutely beyond compare God will not share us with another. He will protect us at all costs. So in it, you can kind of start to see what he's going to do. And what does Moses do? Well, we find out. We've got to go a few pages over to Exodus 33. So what does Moses do when he goes towards God? This is going to help build our case for this idea of coming to him. So in Exodus 33 then, Moses goes off and he, he's interacting with God. God is finding favor in him and basically tells Moses, you know, what, what do you want? And we find out in verse 18. Now just think about this. He's just seen this mountain covered with fire and with smoke. And he's been watching as it's rumbled and trumpets and lightning. And the first thing that he says to him in verse 18, please show me your glory. The word glory literally means weight. It means weightiness. It means heaviness. It means literally to show one one's fullness. And have you ever thought what a crazy request that is? After you've watched this entire thing going crazy, now all of a sudden you look at God and say, God, I want to see more. I think that inside of us as humans, there's this thing that we want to see that. It's the reason that I look at it and inside of my heart, I've always wanted to climb Mount Everest. Why? Because I think there's this thing that we want to do, we want to accomplish. And if I don't do it, I want to watch others do it. I loved it when I went skydiving, a bunch of us. We jumped out of the plane and I don't know, 15,000 feet. But then I watched that Baumgartner dude that went up to 128,000 feet. And there's this weird part of me that I didn't want to do it, but I wanted to watch him. I think built into every single human being is this need to find fear, but beyond that, to see glory. And we can see that in here, and I'm not talking about egotistical fame, but we are awed by glory. We want to see it. And I think Moses in everything suddenly goes, I want to, and look what God says in verse 19. I love this. It's almost like, Moses, you can't handle my glory. 
And he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. And then I will take away my hand so you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. He came to him, requested his glory, and God became gentle. He licked his face. Metaphorically. See, when I understand fear and its counterintuitive nature, and I go to God, I go to him in fear, and I find something else. In fact, it goes on when you get down into chapter 34. Look at chapter 34, verse 5. He begins to show the tenderness of God. And it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, verse 5, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and he worshiped Moses got to him and what did he find he found this awe-inspiring God who was merciful and gracious but in order to come to him you don't come with arrogance you don't come with anything of your own you come in humility understanding who this God is So in other words, God is fearsome and terrifying, I would say this. He does sit in inapproachable light, 1 Timothy Timothy 6.16. He is weighty, he is glorious. Yet with all that power at his disposal, the thing that Moses begins to learn is, is that everything has come to bear because he has a people that he's going to call by his own name, that he's going to draw to himself, and he wants them to build a tabernacle so he can be with them. In other words, all that power and glory is not there to be a vindictive mad God and try to coerce them and cajole them into being his people all that power and glory came to be so that they might see that he's a merciful gracious great God that adores them and places his name upon them because they're special that's what they found when they came to him you know in some ways I know that Moses must have been sitting there going oh my gosh how overwhelming and he shows up and he's gentle I think this is what it teaches in the New Testament. It talks about it like in uh, uh, Hebrews 4.16. It says those now that have come into a right relationship with God, they can now boldly access the throne of grace in their time of need. In other words, even us, the reason that Jesus Christ came, the reason that all of us in this room now can go to that throne room is not because of ourselves, but because of the work of Jesus. And when we go to that throne room of grace, we find help in our time of need. This God adores us and he loves us. He is the great high priest who who passed through doing the work that no one else could do. Why? Because he wants to be with us. His whole goal as God when he created humanity is that we would be a people that would enjoy him forever. Not only that, Romans 8, but then God pours out his Holy Spirit and he's not just this God afar off, but now we can call him Father and Daddy. And he finishes then with this understanding, if that God who sits in unapproachable light and whom no sin can enter into who he is, who created the entire universe is for us, then my question is, who can be against us? 
That's this fear. He beckons us with a growl sometimes, with a nip at our heel to come to me. Oswald Chambers, if you've never read him before, he's kind of written uh, books like Upmost for His Highest, but while reflecting on this, and I think I have it, can you put the first quote up there? He says this, he says, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Oh, <laughs> isn't that good? He's kind of smart. I would never say it that well. I believe that's why in life so often is that we avoid the fear of God, misunderstanding that as I fear God and draw near to Him and I get close to Him and I understand who He is, suddenly everything else begins to fade away. It was His point to help us understand that you don't have to get rid of fear in your life. See, I think inside of all of us, we want a place to put our fear. And if I don't place my fear in God, then I place it into worry. I place it into fear of people. I place it into fear of circumstances. And God is looking at us and saying, my fear was never designed to land into those things. The fear that I've given you was so that you would place it in me. And when you place it in me, you fear nothing. I think that's the idea of the fear of God from his word. A guy named William D. Eisenhower, I don't know if he's related to uh, Dwight Eisenhower, so don't ask me. Pastor, theologian, he wrote this. He said, unfortunately, many of us presume that the world is the ultimate threat and that God's function is to offset it. How different this is from the biblical position that God is far scarier than the world. When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it an unwarranted power. For in truth, the world's threats are temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce him to the world's equal. As I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. He rescues me from my delusions so he may reveal the truth that sets me free. He casts me down only to lift me up again. He sits in judgment of my sin but forgives me nevertheless. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love from the Lord is its completion. Not bad. That's why I think Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs that when I begin to fear the Lord, actually that leads to life, 1923. Why? Because the fountain of life is inside of the fear of the Lord, 1427. It even prolongs at 1027. And you and I will continue to live in incomprehensibility until we learn the fear of God. Until I learn to look at life understanding that I have no control of it, only He does. I look around the church and we're so fearful of the elections coming up. Why? Yeah, but Todd, two words. Hillary Clinton. As if God goes, oh, what are we going to do? Are you kidding me? Our God sits in unapproachable light. Todd, but I feel like everything is so chaotic and out of control. Yeah, but it's a nail firmly fixed, a God that does not move, a refuge that we can find help in our time of need. But Todd, you don't know my circumstances. I'll tell you what. Your circumstances are no comparison to the God of the universe. And you don't have to figure out how to get rid of your fear. You need to be able to find God. And when you find God, fear finds you and all your other fears dissipate. That's what I'm trying to find. Now what's interesting is, 
is what he says then down in the rest of verse 13. You're probably wondering if I was ever going to get to this idea of keep his commandments. I am. Here's all I'm going to say. I'd put it this way. It seems the only response to the one who understands the fear of God is just to do whatever God says. And that just makes sense. If God says jump, we say, how high? If he says go left, we say, should I go lefter? It's just this understanding, right, that he gets life. He's like, I created this world. I know how it works and how it functions. In fact, I hold everything in my hand from the microscopic to the macroscopic. I created you. I wove you together inside of your mother's womb. I know how you work. I understand life. In fact, I'm the one one day that Chris talked about last week, and I thought he did a great job, that you're going to stand in front of one day. So why are you fearful of all those things? Just fear me and just do what I say. Trust me. A few years ago, and I've told this story before, I was in Australia. And I was sitting there in the ocean, and there was a guy that was a captain inside the Australian Navy, and I looked over at him, and I said, what happens if you're like out in your ship and you get caught in a typhoon? He goes, well, we don't anymore because of just satellite data and different things. And I go, yeah, yeah, okay, so like old school, before all this stuff, what would they do? He said, the interesting thing was you would see the contrast between a good captain and a bad captain. The bad captain honestly thought he could break the storm, and so he would try to pull out of that particular storm. He would try to drive outside of it, only to find out that as he began to exit this particular storm, they would often exit in the wrong way, and the wind and the waves would beat them, and they would sink their ship. He said, but what the good captain did was, is he went to the very center of the storm, and he just went wherever the storm took him. And I would say this. God is a storm that you can't beat. People have tried to throughout time. And one day when all of us are standing in front of him, we will realize no one can beat this storm. But you climb into the center of who he is, and at times it will get rocky and wavy. But the beauty of being in the eye of the storm is you can always look up, and this is what he said, the captains could always look up and see the stars above them and they could see where they were. And when we're going through whatever we're going through, we can just look up. In other words, we just go wherever God takes us. We just keep his commands. So today, if you don't know Jesus, I'm looking at you and saying, you can't break God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Man, today is the day to know this Jesus I'm talking about. To fall on your face in front of him, realizing he's the God that holds your soul and your life inside of his hand. Don't be afraid of everything else. Fear that one. Come to know him. Bend the knee before him. And I promise you what you'll find is you'll find a God that is merciful and gracious, that loves to forgive, and he demonstrated it through his work on the cross. If those of you that are in here, they're listening to me as Christians, I think we need to reacquaint ourselves with fear. The Bible says, where do I find fear? I ask for fear, I dive into his word, and I just begin to learn the fear of God. I think we need to relearn this. I think then out of it, we need to relearn what it means to just do whatever God says for us to do. I think we need to rejoin the word of God and just say, God, if you tell us to do it, no matter if it doesn't make any sense, we're just going to do it. God, whatever. And I promise you, we do that, and God will take us where he wants us to get us. Our God is a consuming fire who cannot be stopped. 
but the Bible calls him our daddy. Crazy. So if you want prayer, we'd love to pray for you over here. If you want to get baptized today, just as a, as a sign of desiring to tell us you want to follow Jesus, we'd love to do it. But make sure at the end of the day, we know the fear of God. Amen? Amen. All right. Father, thank you so much for today. Thanks for your word. Teach us anew and afresh what your fear means so that we might know you for who you are. In your precious name we pray. Amen.